John Shai lost nearly everything around lunchtime on November 7, 1885. He had just sat down to a meal with his wife and 11-year-old son in their ranch house in New Mexico, just south of Deming. A strange noise was suddenly heard outside the ranch's window. When he went to investigate, Shai found an Apache pointing a rifle at him. The Apache claimed it was okay and that he was a quote-unquote good Indian, but Shai's instincts told him otherwise. Yelling for his wife to take their son upstairs, Shai made a run for his own Winchester rifle, while bullets struck the side of the house. He returned fire through the window and was able to get the Apache and his comrades to dive behind some nearby rocks. The skirmishing continued for what must have seemed like an eternity, before an Apache called out again that they were actually scouts for the army. This was a poor deception at best, and Shai knew better than to fall for it. So finally, the Apache decided that they couldn't get held up at this one place, so they raided the ranch house next to Shai's, which they also set ablaze. But the fire then leapt to Shai's house, so he had to stuff his pockets with cartridges, grab his wife and child, and dash out the front door, feeling the bullets impacting against the walls of his home as he made the 40-yard dash to a nearby gulch. He sought cover down there to keep his family safe, but found five Apache actually already hiding in this gulch, and the rancher instantly emptied his Winchester at them, driving them all off. Authorities would find Shai's wife hiding under a mesquite brush the next day, and then Shai and his son at the burnt remains of his ranch house later that night. He had lost everything in that fire, with the sole exception of the clothes on his back, his now empty Winchester, and his family. But in that, he could count himself lucky, because the raiders that had started the conflict weren't just random Apache in the area. There were no more random Apache in the area. They were, in fact, part of a group that was specifically carving a bloody path across southern New Mexico and Arizona. So, in the grand scheme of things, Shai got off lucky, because many of his fellow settlers would never survive their run-ins with these particular Apache. And all the while, people were wondering, if Apache were running loose on American soil, where in the world could the military be? I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 106, No Speedy Results. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we finished up the late summer of 1885 as Captain Davis, Lieutenant Davis, and a couple side characters named Davis dealt with the Apache, harsh storms, and not-so-friendly Mexicans. Crook also popped up at the end to give us a look at the political landscape that all this was playing out on top of. But during the course of that whole narrative, we lost sight of the most valuable target of all, Geronimo. Of course, we are now roughly in the same position as Crook and his forces, who were uncertain what Geronimo would try next. Fortunately, we have the advantage of more than 130 years, so we can just dive in and pick up the story where we need to. Okay, last time we saw Geronimo, he had fled after his camp was raided on August 7th, 1885. 
He and Mongus also parted ways, but Nana joined with him, as Geronimo pushed directly east into the roughest bits of the Sierra Madres that he could find in order to throw off any potential pursuits. But you'll recall from last week that Lieutenant Davis had indeed followed him on this route, and maybe would have caught up with him if it hadn't been for that whole Mexican troops imprisoning his pack train thing. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney says that Geronimo and his company had actually been close enough to hear the bullets when Davis's men had killed the Mexican cows that had started that entire incident. In fact, they had scattered southward where they hid the women and the children with them in some mountains. And it was why they were there that their horses gave out, so being Apache, Geronimo and his men raided for more at a nearby ranch before doing an about-face and heading straight north. Davis, who was trying to follow him right up until the moment the Mexicans told him that his services wouldn't be required, was unsure of Geronimo's ultimate destination, but his scouts believed that Nana was leading the group to the Mescalero Reservation in New Mexico. And once he was safely in the U.S. again, Davis wired Crook immediately with that piece of intelligence. Another thought was that he was heading towards the Navajo Reservation, where Mongus had allies. Crook passed this news along to his new Mexican counterpart, Colonel Luther Bradley, who deployed troops near where they thought Geronimo would pop up, and told the fort commanders under him to offer the tribes on the reservation $100 for the head of any hostile Chiricahua. But these measures would be of no avail, because the intelligence turned out to be just plain wrong. Mongus, as we know, wasn't with him and Nana was not guiding Geronimo toward the Mescalero Reservation at all, mainly because Nana was not guiding Geronimo anywhere. The old man split off with 15 followers to hide in the mountains northwest of Hanos. This division left Geronimo with only five men, one of them being his own son, Chapo, and about a half dozen women. But instead of this small size being a hindrance, it turned out to be more of a strike force that he could use to clandestinely enter New Mexico and Arizona. Geronimo had probably been considering heading back to Arizona since the strike at Bucaseca a month earlier, with the sole purpose of recovering his family. Like we mentioned two episodes ago, Geronimo, like everyone else, thought his family was being held up at Fort Apache, which was overseen by the San Carlos Reservation and so he now had to make a daring raid up to the White Mountains to get them back. As Crook had men patrolling all the main routes into the U.S., including the always-used Palancillo Mountain Corridor, the wily renegade decided to take a more circuitous route. He swung east, and in early September, he crossed into New Mexico east of Palomas Lake, pretty much the same spot where he had crossed into Mexico just a few months earlier. By September 7, 1885, he and his group were safely ensconced in the mountains around Deming, New Mexico. From there, it was a game of moving swiftly from hiding spot to hiding spot. But that was not going to last. On September 9th, a small Mexican party spotted Geronimo and his company afar off. Knowing that they didn't want a piece of that action at all, the company turned around and headed toward Fort Cummings to report the news. With their location now blown, Geronimo turned to his Plan B. Unfortunately, Plan B was to make a series of bloody diversions that would distract from his true goal. 
So on September 11th, the small party ambushed numerous local ranchers and really just anyone unlucky enough to get in their way while heading towards the Mimbrus Mountains. They killed three men over the course of two days and took an 11-year-old named Santiago McKinn hostage, in the process turning McKinn into the 1885 version of Charlie McComas because of the intense public outcry to reclaim him. By September 15th, Geronimo and his company had made it to the most secluded, rugged section of the Mogollon Mountains, his home turf, so to speak, where he could plan his next move. Three days later, on September 18th, he was on the move yet again, heading toward Arizona, specifically the East Fork of the White River, where he hoped to find the camp of the Chiricahua that had not broken out with him back in May. Around 1 a.m. on September 22nd, he managed to slip onto the reservation, but found that Captain Charles Gatewood had actually moved all the Chiricahua closer to Fort Apache. A white Mountain Apache woman guarding a small farm was able to tell him that the wives and children captured down in Mexico weren't at Fort Apache at all, like he had expected. However, she was also able to relate that his wife, Shiga, was in the Chiricahua camp. This was the wife I mentioned back in episode 103 that had been sent to the Mescalero Reservation during the initial breakout to try and drum up some more support for Geronimo. Like I said in that episode, she had been promptly handed over to authorities who had sent her back to Fort Apache. Thanks to this recent bit of intel, Geronimo was able to sneak into the Chiricahua camp, find his wife, and extract her, their three-year-old child, and the other woman that had been captured on the Mescalero Reservation. They were gone by daybreak, but that's when the White Mountain Apache also awoke to discover that Geronimo had decided to steal some horses from them. Angered, they went out to hunt for him, but ultimately, they all returned empty-handed. When he was alerted of this, Crook told Captain Charles Gatewood, the military commander of Fort Apache, to not call on the troops stationed at the fort, but rather to use the White Mountain Apache and any disaffected Chiricahua as scouts to hunt down Geronimo. Gatewood was worried that the White Mountain Apache in particular would kill Geronimo or drive him off the reservation instead of capture him, to which Crook replied, quote, kill Geronimo and his entire party, end quote. Though he later softened this to say that taking Geronimo prisoner was the optimal outcome. When news of Geronimo's raid broke out, former Lieutenant Britton Davis was at Fort Thomas. He instantly headed to Fort Apache to help out his friend, Gatewood, by conducting his own investigation. Davis concluded correctly that Geronimo's sole goal was to find out where Crook was holding his captured family members. However, he then incorrectly guessed that Geronimo would stay in the area until he had done so, and just to show you how inaccurate intel could be, he also believed that Mongus had gone up to the Navajo reservation to incite others to break out, despite Mongus still being holed up in the Sierra Madres down in Mexico. Also, just in case you're keeping track at home, this is the cameo appearance by Davis that I hinted at last week before he leaves the scene forever. But in reality, Geronimo was again making fast tracks for the Mogollon Mountains and ultimately down into Mexico again. But once in the mountains, Geronimo found Nana and the others that had split off from him. 
they would spend a good week or so up in those mountains, especially after ambushing and killing a wagon driver who was transporting all sorts of merchandise. Santiago McKinn, their captive, recalled that, among other items, the Apache found a large box full of candy, which they all ate in one sitting. And since they didn't have mothers to warn them not to, they all woke up feeling ill the next morning. After they had polished off everything from this wagon, Geronimo decided to head toward Mexico again on October 6th. McKinnon would later write that he believed the Apache cast lots to decide whether to kill him or not. Since I said he was able to later write this, you can deduce which way the fate cited on that one. Helping Geronimo immensely was the fact that at the same time he was trying to sneak down into Mexico, Chihuahua and Nightshade decided to head north out of Mexico and up into Arizona. Now, this was not some grand coordinated effort, and it's doubtful that either Chihuahua or Nightshade even knew that Geronimo was in the United States when they entered Arizona. They had been pursued by Captain Wirt Davis and his men, and it soon became apparent to the army that the hostiles they were chasing were making a beeline straight for the U.S. border possibly with the aim of Chihuahua taking his shot of going to Fort Apache and trying to find his family. Davis sent a messenger ahead to warn troops along the border, particularly a Captain William Martin who was near a place called Guadalupe Canyon, which sits in Arizona just inside of the borders with New Mexico and Mexico. But Martin didn't act immediately on the information relayed to him, and sure enough, the Chiricahua passed within a few miles of his camp without any issue. Davis was not pleased at all, telling Martin peevishly, quote, I can send you information, but I cannot furnish you brains, end quote. The only choice now was to chase the Chiricahua, but Lieutenant Elliot, the one captured by Mexicans last episode, summed up the situation as, quote, Nothing yet invented has ever caught a Chiricahua in the mountains, certainly not from the rear, end quote. Crook was humiliated by the fact that not only had Geronimo slipped onto the reservation to get his wife and child, but that there was now a whole other force of hostile Chiricahua that had also slipped back onto his turf. He sent word to Fort Apache to move all the remaining Chiricahua closer to the fort and to tell the White Mountain Apache that he was offering $100 a head for any hostiles they could capture. It seems that Crook was more than a little annoyed with the White Mountain Apache, seeing as they had failed to capture Geronimo a week earlier. He, more than a little unfairly, was blaming them for being lazy and apathetic, and because Crook is notoriously thin-skinned, he felt that they were being ungrateful to him personally and toward everything he had done for them. In an extremely bullying note, he told Captain Gatewood to relay to the White Mountain Apache, quote, Tell the White Mountain Indians that the General is getting tired of doing all their work for them, and that he will ask to go away from here, and they will probably then get another big-bellied agent who will move them all to San Carlos, and that he won't come back again to help them out of any more scrapes. End quote. Yeah, Crook is not at all a happy camper anymore. But the hostile Chiricahua were ignorant of all this happening in the background. Instead, they kept moving. 
In fact, Chihuahua and Nightshade even split up for a time, taking separate routes north of different sides of the Chiricahua Mountains. These two Apache camps soon discovered that soldiers were all around them and that getting out of the mountains to continue north was going to be impossible. So both turned around to meet up again in the southern Chiricahua Range on October 2nd, 1885, or four days before Geronimo decided to head to Mexico again himself. Of course, both Chihuahua and Nietzsche had raided horses and mules along the way, though Chihuahua's path was always a lot bloodier than Nietzsche's. Then they all pointed themselves southward again and started moving. By October 11th, all hostile Chiricahua were once again safely outside of the U.S. So the Mexican campaign over the summer of 1885 had only seen limited success. The Chiricahua were still out there, raiding as they saw fit, and they always managed to slip out of the net that Crook and his officers were trying to throw over them. But with them still being a threat that could spill over into the U.S. at any time, as Geronimo, Chihuahua, and Nietzsche had just proven, Crook was forced to conclude that yet another campaign in Mexico was needed. On October 2nd, he met to discuss the next phase of the operation with Colonel Luther Bradley from New Mexico and Arizona Governor Frederick A. Triddle, who, as we talked about in episode 91, was a mere five days away from resigning. What Crook could see was that everyone— the officers, the scouts, even the mules, were worn out from months of hard campaigning. So on October 10, 1885, Crook met with Captain Crawford and his scouts, where he decided to discharge them so they could return to their families and their farms. All the scouts were extremely pleased with this decision and took him up on the offer, including both Mickey Free and Chato. Crook had been especially impressed with Chato and all his efforts to find and punish the renegades. He wrote to his superiors that Chato's family was being held in the city of Chihuahua and that the War Department should do all it could to get them released as a thank you for his service. Crook wrote his superiors about discharging the scouts and recruiting new ones, plus his plans to send Captains Crawford and Davis to resume operations. His hope was that all the hostiles would come together for the winter, thus affording the army the chance to nab them in one go. Crook's superiors agreed to the plan, though his immediate superior wrote that, quote, the outlook promises no speedy results, end quote. For all of you that have seen the 2001 film American Outlaws, just imagine Timothy Dalton saying, it's going to be a long winter. Meanwhile, Geronimo had crossed down into Mexico and was traveling toward Casas Grandes, all the while having clashes with Mexicans because that's what he does. He eventually made it to a secluded camp in the pine trees where he met up with both Chihuahua and Nietzsche about 50 miles east of Casas Grandes. Now, these three had not been together since May 19th, and you may recall that Chihuahua at one point vowed to kill Geronimo but the intervening five months seems to have cooled his temper slightly. Or, perhaps now more infuriated at Chato and the scouts, he had decided to follow the old maxim that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or at least the person I won't immediately kill. 
Or, as we'll see, perhaps he decided to work with Geronimo because both were missing families and both would do anything to get them back. Now gathered together, it was time to decide what their next course of action was. Sweeney says that surrender, Crook's preferred option, was probably not even on their minds. They would be thinking about the harsh sentence handed down to Kaitene when he had just made trouble at the reservation. If that's what the army did for a low-level troublemaker, what would Crook hand down for those that had left the reservation and had raided and pillaged ever since? They probably thought that Crook would hang them all, or even worse, turn them over to civil authorities for a trial, which would probably end up with them being hanged. As we discussed two episodes ago, they would have been right about being turned over for trial, except Crook was the one pushing for terms of surrender. I feel this is a running theme of the Apache Wars. A lot of the bloodshed and fighting could have been resolved if the two sides had exercised just a few more modicums of trust. But trust was in short supply, especially when it came to Chihuahua and Geronimo, so they settled on another course of action, tracking down their still missing families. Since they now knew definitively that they were not being held at Fort Apache, it was time to look elsewhere. They settled on the San Carlos Agency as another likely place where their loved ones were being held. So they set into motion a plan to sneak onto the reservation and get their families back. Chihuahua would lead a diversionary force into New Mexico, riding around causing enough of a ruckus that it would distract from his brother Usana as he and a smaller group snuck onto San Carlos. Osana's group consisted of 12 men, all of whom had lost wives or children during Crook's Mexican campaign or had left them when they busted out from Turkey Creek. Half of them had served as scouts while on the reservation, and all of them now bore a special hatred for the Apache scouts who were even then hunting them down. And if they couldn't get vengeance, they could at least take prisoners or recover the families they had left behind. In mid-October... Just a few days after coming together, the hostile Chiricahua split up again. Geronimo, Naiche, and Nana moved to raid into Chihuahua, while Chihuahua and Usana moved north again to raid into the United States. And because the Apache can't seem to stop themselves, they of course raided and pillaged settlements on their way up. Before entering New Mexico, the two brothers, Chihuahua and Usana, split up. Chihuahua, as I said, was the diversion, and he crossed into the U.S. east of Palomas Lake, the same route Geronimo had taken at least twice now. His time raiding in New Mexico killed five people in the space of two weeks, stealing multiple heads of livestock, and in the words of an observer appeared, quote, perfectly unconcerned as to their pursuers, either military, militia, or civilian, end quote. At one point, he was pursued by Captain Adna Chaffee, who had served for a short time as the interim agent for San Carlos, but Chaffee and his men were unable to catch up with Chihuahua before he managed to slip back down into Mexico on November 7th. November 7th is also when Ulsana's group also made their first attack on American soil, killing two couriers in New Mexico's Florida mountains. Now, I'm not sure what's the point of having a diversionary group if you leave after they get back and then you get into scrapes along the way, but hey, Ulsana, you do you. 
And Ulsana doing Ulsana also apparently included attacking Shai's ranch and setting it on fire, which definitely gave away the fact that something was going down. And then moving on to kill a man and his wife, whom it was rumored that they had also raped. To that last point, they had stripped the woman of her clothing, but rape was not part of Apache raiding culture, so this was just an ugly rumor floating around. But as you can imagine, it was a very ugly rumor. The Americans already considered the Apache to be little more than savages, so it didn't take much to convince them that every atrocity they heard was true. And not to belabor this point, but these recent atrocities had really sent the press into a tizzy, attacking Crook unabashedly and calling for his head and the head of any Apache out there. One resident of Silver City even suggested that a posse be formed to ride to San Carlos and go the full KKK route on the Apache living there. In the wake of Ulsana's attacks, everyone was starting to believe the erroneous idea that every Apache was either a hostile or a hostile waiting to happen. The population had heard it so much from military officers, the press, territorial politicians, and federal officials that they believed it hook, line, and sinker. The reality was that less than 150 Apache had fled from San Carlos or Fort Apache. Those that hadn't fled definitely weren't offering shelter or aid. Many of the men had volunteered as scouts to hunt down the renegades, and that Geronimo had no friends among the Chiricahua that had stayed. But no one knew these facts, and even if they had heard them, they probably wouldn't have believed them. Sweeney says that though Usana had killed less than 10 people, it reverberated in the halls of Washington, D.C. as if he had killed hundreds. It also gave General Nelson Miles, Crook's bitter rival, a chance to needle him, seeing as General Miles oversaw the Department of New Mexico. Miles seemed to suggest harebrained schemes to stick it to Crook right and left, including the idea we talked about last time about transferring all the Apache to Fort Leavenworth. Well, now he suggested combining the military departments of New Mexico and Arizona under one overall commander, and that commander was definitely not Crook. His suggestion? Turn the troops over to Colonel Eugene Carr. If that name sounds slightly familiar, it's because Carr was the officer from way back in episode 91 who had arrested and killed Nock I. Decline, the Dreamer, which had caused some of the scouts to turn on the army and was a major factor behind the 1881 breakout from the reservation. Luckily, Miles' superiors recognized this as a dumb idea and that Crook was doing the best he could under difficult circumstances. However, all of this was really starting to stick in the craw of General Phillips Sheridan, overall commander of the army. He and Crook had been classmates at West Point, but... Their relationship had cooled over the years, especially as they disagreed fundamentally about the best solution to the Apache problem. Sheridan had backed Crook up to this point, recognizing the difficult job laid at his feet, and in fact, just before Usana had begun his raid, Sheridan had encouraged everyone in the Southwest that they needed to be patient with both Crook and his policies. But with Chihuahua and then Usana's bloody raids now causing such an outcry, Sheridan was more than a little frustrated. He wired Crook immediately that telegraphs were coming in constantly to him, the War Department, and even the President about the intolerable situation. 
Couldn't Crook just give him some good news or assurance that, you know, this thing would be wrapped up sometime soon? But Crook couldn't tell him that because it wasn't true. The best he could do was say that he was doing, well, the best that he could do. He wrote, quote, All is being done that in my judgment can be done for the suppression of these Indian troubles. I have no means of knowing how long this trouble may last yet. End quote. It was a very honest answer, but it would do nothing to mollify the inhabitants of New Mexico and Arizona, who all thought that they were on the verge of being murdered in their sleep any time now. And so Sheridan decided that he needed to do something to assure everyone that they would be safe. His solution? The same one that Miles had proposed. All of the Chiricahua, whether or not they had fled the reservation, had to be removed from Arizona. Sheridan also dutifully passed this suggestion along to William C. Endicott, the Secretary of War, who took it under advisement. Endicott also suggested that Sheridan should go to Arizona personally to meet with Crook and discuss this course of action. We will follow up with that in-person meeting next week, along with Usana, who had gone into stealth mode for a couple weeks following his last attack. But he wasn't gone, and he certainly wasn't hiding for long. Instead, he was creeping ever closer to Fort Apache and the San Carlos Reservation with only two goals in his mind. Rescue his men's families, kill as many traitor scouts as he could, or manage to do both at the same time. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.